From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, December 12th. I'm Marco Werman. North Korea rattles the world with its latest rocket launch. This former diplomat hears a clear message. It's a clear sign that they really don't care what the rest of us think. Also, we'll hear about North Korea's peculiar ways of blocking Internet access. The goal here is to create what's been called a mosquito net. And later, Pia Sundhaga, former coach of the U.S. women's soccer team, on how she deals with stress. In order to be myself, I bring out the music and I start to sing Bob Dylan. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The White House is calling today's North Korean rocket launch a highly provocative act. Highly provocative, perhaps, though apparently a successful act as well. North Korea claimed it was launching a weather satellite, and the Pentagon has confirmed that an object was indeed launched into orbit. But the U.S. and the international community are condemning the launch as a thinly disguised ballistic missile test. That didn't stop the North Korean regime from celebrating, though. State-run TV there was showing images of people dancing in the streets of Pyongyang. (laughs) Ambassador Christopher Hill is a veteran of negotiations with North Korea over its nuclear program. He's now dean of the Joseph Korbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Ambassador, we often hear reports about North Korea going against the will of the international community. How big a day is this, in your view, for concern over North Korea? Well, I think it's significant. Uh, Obviously, when they failed in their missile launch nine months ago, it it meant that this day was going to be inevitable, that they would continue to do it until they got it right. So I think it's a big problem because I think it signifies that the North Koreans are continuing a nuclear weapons program and a uh, delivery system. So I don't think it's the kind of issue that we can kind of uh, poo-poo and say is not important. I mean, clearly they have a ways to go. There's no sign, for example, that they've miniaturized any nuclear weapons uh, design. It's not much of an indication that they could even really direct this rocket, but certainly it's a clear sign that uh, they really don't care what the rest of us think. Now, there will be those who will say this is a sign that, uh, you know, there's no point to diplomacy. But those who say there's no point to diplomacy are essentially giving the North Koreans a free pass. That is music to their ears. They want us to kind of give up on it and accept them as a nuclear weapon state. And I don't think we should do that. According to U.S. experts, this rocket is North Korea's highest level of missile technology, more powerful than the one that had uh, embarrassingly exploded right after takeoff in April. And the North says they're designed to send satellites into orbit. Tell us all about that and what exactly these satellites are going to be doing. 
Well, frankly speaking, the technology is very similar to the technology you use for a missile delivering a nuclear warhead. Nonetheless, from what we can tell, it appears that they were able to send a, a satellite into orbit, probably the size of a breadbasket. But I would encourage your listeners not to look at this as uh, North Korea somehow joining the space race. It's rather North Korea joining the nuclear arms race. And I think it poses an enormous challenge for the rest of us. Now, the U.S. and its allies were angered by this launch, uh, mostly seeing it as a provocation. China said it expressed regret, but called on all the sides to avoid stoking the flames. How do you see China playing a calming or moderating or any role in this? Well, first of all, it's very clear the Chinese are not happy with these uh, efforts by the North Koreans. The issue really is what are the Chinese prepared to do about it? The Chinese are very much focused on their own internal issues. There is no consensus within Chinese policy circles about putting uh, real pressure on the North Koreans. So the upshot is you get statements out of Beijing, which are pretty mild in comparison to the uh, provocation. They say things like they regret this, but in fact, this is a very serious matter. And I think the United States, uh, South Korean Japan in particular, are going to have to work very hard to see what we need to do. I suspect we're going to see more anti-missile capability brought to bear in that part of the world. Certainly, that should be something the Chinese worry about. But in the meantime, they seem to be so preoccupied with their domestic problems that they don't appear to have really paid a lot of attention. Christopher Hill, thank you very much. Thank you. With long-range rockets in space and rampant hunger on the ground, it's difficult to gauge the state of technological advancement in North Korea today. Scott Thomas Bruce looks closely at modern technology in North Korea. He's an associate at the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability. And Scott, let's start with uh, the World Wide Web. Uh, Can the average middle-class North Korean in Pyongyang sit down at a computer and log on to the same Internet we use? No, not at all. First off, this is technology that is only really accessible to the elite within the country. The regime has made sure that those that have access to it are those that it believes have the most stake in the long-term survival of the state. Secondly, it's important to note that they can't actually get to the full Internet. What they get access to is an intranet that has no connection to the Internet we know, that is sort of a controlled playground that the state has set up for them to use. So tell us more about uh, the state-sponsored intranet in North Korea. It's called Kwangmyong. What you have is a system that has some bulletin board functions, some media content, and a series of documents that the regime has screened and allowed to have been uploaded to it that people can access from labs. You rarely will have it in your house from public labs where the uh, entry to those labs is controlled by the government. It's, of course, exceptionally well monitored by the state. I think, though, one of the biggest developments is that earlier this year, Kim Jong-un has announced that this system and the Internet in general should be used to collect information that will support the long-term development goals of the state. Right. And what does that mean in terms of the population, that they'll be forever kind of locked out of the Internet? It's important that the state keep out access to sensitive foreign information that they believe will corrupt their citizens. The goal here is to create what's been called a mosquito net. They want to make sure that they can bring in information that they believe is safe for their people to look at, but ultimately they want to make sure that their people aren't able to go out and look at any harmful bits of information. So you have a closed Internet. You have a series of cell phones that can only make calls within the country. Uh, basically, you're allowed, if you're an elite, free access to materials the state has determined that you should be allowed access to. 
Now, despite the vigilance and, and monitoring in China, uh, there have been any number of workarounds from uh, netizens to get through these uh, restrictions and filters. And yet the North Korean government thinks it can restrict the use of technology to just the most elite part of the population. How long do they think they can keep a lid on it? Well, they certainly hope they can keep a lead on it indefinitely. One of the drivers here is you already are seeing things like Chinese cell phones start to slip down to the border in the north. These cell phones can bounce off of Chinese cell towers and actually make calls outside of the country. The regime is understandably very nervous about these, so it's been triangulating the signals and working on trying to arrest and prosecute the people who have had access to them. So what the government is hoping is that it can create its own system that will substitute for any external system that it could not control. So what do you foresee as the digital future of North Korea? When will the genie slip out of the bottle? I mean, it almost sounds like it is already. Well, you're starting to see movement at the edges. I think for now, the system, in part due to the uh, very rigid class structure of the state, is stable. But for the first time, with a million cell phones in the country, there are more conversations going on there than the state security mechanism can track. And the very existence of an intranet means that the North Koreans are becoming information seekers, even in the limited pool that they're allowed to play in. These are very fundamental changes for a country that's probably the most secretive nation on earth. This is a fundamental change in North Korea, although I, I do not believe we're looking at a situation that could lead to some sort of you know, Pyongyang Spring type uprising in the foreseeable future. Scott Thomas Bruce with the Nautilus Institute for Security and Sustainability. Great to speak. Thank you. My pleasure. You might say North Korea's rocket launch was also for their domestic audience, a grand gesture designed to stir the people. At one time, China was big on making grand gestures and proclamations. Under Mao Zedong, propaganda was just about everywhere, in classrooms, on posters, in the media. But behind the idealistic images were often political turmoil and human suffering. Now one man who lived through it has opened a propaganda poster museum in Shanghai. The world's Mary Kay Maggs had paid a visit. Step into the Shanghai Propaganda Poster Art Center in the basement of an apartment building, and you step back in time. Why part of the capitalism? This is just before Cultural Revolution, 1965. Yang Pei Ming was a teenager when the Cultural Revolution broke out in 1966. He became a Red Guard. He says just about everyone his age did. But then another group of Red Guards attacked his family's house, ransacked their belongings, even took his stamp collection. The whole experience taught Yang a lesson to see through the propaganda of the time. Cultural Revolution gives you a very good lesson. Huh? You, you go through Cultural Revolution, then you sit down, you, you do thinking, you will think many things. You will distinguish what is real, what is fake, what is good, what is bad. Here on the walls, in splashes of color, lots of red, was the world as the Communist Party wanted the Chinese people to see it. Happy, dancing people, noble soldiers, a smiling, benevolent Mao Zedong. Even during the Great Famine in the late 1950s and early 60s, when some 30 million people died, there's a poster of a cute girl in pigtails with a fat mother pig and her piglets. Nothing to eat, so they do a big pig in the picture. At least they can watch the pig. <laughs> These days, propaganda in China is decidedly more slick. Hello, then, and welcome to CCTV News. I'm Li Dongning in Beijing. This Chinese central television newscast looks like a newscast anywhere. But behind the scenes, the propaganda apparatus is still hard at work. 
Chinese journalists still get regular directives from the propaganda bureau about what to write, what not to write, where to place stories on a page, and how long to leave them up online. It's all rather annoying for journalists like Yu Chun of the Southern Metropolis Daily, who'd like to do more real journalism. He says censorship of traditional newspapers has gotten really tight in recent years. Only the party newspapers, like the People's Daily, are allowed to have freer debate on issues. At least, he says, there's social media. He and other journalists have been using Twitter and Weibo to get ideas out that otherwise would be muffled or shaped into the message the party wants people to hear. But even that arena is getting renewed scrutiny from China's new propaganda czar, Liu Qibao. After disappearing for a few days earlier this month, he emerged to say he's studying how to strengthen control of the Internet. He said the media, or as he put it, the propaganda, ideological and cultural front lines, must serve the party. That is their cardinal task. He went on to say they must explain profound theories in simple language to enter people's hearts and minds. That's propaganda, all right. But Dolly Young, a political science professor at the University of Chicago, says the party's not so comfortable calling it what it is anymore, at least not publicly. And that actually says something, because used to be the propaganda department would issue a lot of directives publicly. That's no longer happening. Today they would make a phone call. But yeah, they also don't want to publicly say, oh, this is what I do, censorship. Not surprising, given how media-savvy and sophisticated much of China's population has become. Almost half are now online, so information can be checked and counter-checked, and skepticism is rife. Yang Peiming, the propaganda art center owner, says it's clear what the government has to do in modern China to win people's hearts and minds. I think that even the government came to realize propaganda cannot be so important like yesterday. So education should be proved by the deeds you have done, how much care you have taken to the people. So solve the problems of the people, really. So it's not only lip service. China's new leaders seem to get this. At least, it's said that at this time of alarmingly wide and growing income disparity and disgust with corruption, they're reading up on what caused the French Revolution. The message from this propaganda art museum, this glimpse of an idealized communist China that never really was, may well be, don't believe your own publicity. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Shanghai. A smiling Mao and that poster of the cute girl with a mother pig and piglets. We've got pictures from the Propaganda Poster Museum at theworld.org. This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, advancing access to health care through global philanthropy. Learn more in the Medtronic 2012 Philanthropy Report, online at medtronicfoundation.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. If you play soccer, you probably know our next guest. But if you've got a daughter, heck, if you've got a son who plays soccer, then they probably know our next guest better than you. She is Pia Sundhaga, and until September, she was the coach of the U.S. women's national soccer team. They had a great run under Sundhaga, World Cup finalists last year, gold medalists at the Olympics this year. They always put on an exciting show. But now Sundhaga is back in her native Sweden, coaching the national women's team there. 
Although right this second, she's back in the U.S. for a couple of days. Pia, great to have you on the program. Thank you very much for having me. So you gave this talk last night in Hartford, and you began with a song. And knowing what I do know about you, it doesn't take a, a lot of persuasion to get you to sing. So can you give us a few bars of what you sang in Hartford, and then tell us why you sang it? Well, you know, first of all, I'm you know a little bit nervous when you're standing on the stage in front of people. So in order to be myself, I bring up the music, and I start to sing Bob Dylan. Come gather round, people, wherever you roam. And continue with change and to talk about my leadership. That's an important song because when you arrived in 2005 to start coaching the, the U.S. women's team here, you sang it to, you know, the, the women gathered in the locker room. Why? Because I wanted them to know who I am uh, in order to be myself and so show some courage. I started to sing. It was 50-50 whether they thought this is crazy coach or this is coach we really want to follow. And um, after that song, I just looked at Abby and some of the players. Abby and they, Yeah, Abby Warmback. And they gave me a, a big hand and then we went from there. And um, I grabbed the chance to tell them the change. Yeah, you need a lot of energy to do that and I'm not alone. So you need to help me and we're going to do it together. Well, whatever you did, whatever you sang that day seemed to work. Uh, the team went on a pretty magical run. But singing surely isn't your only motivating factor in getting the team to do what it did. What is your coaching style? How would you define it? Well, I look at the positive things. Uh, my glass is half full. Um, I put on my positive glasses and I coach the healthy part. Instead of trying to uh, I analyze the mistake, of course, but instead of fix the mistakes, I try to look at when it works. You know, we talk about double it instead. So you create that positive environment. I do believe that everybody plays a big part in creating that environment. But also when it comes to performance, you bring out the performance, best performance in each other. So we want to play to her strength all the time. I do believe that the players have the ability. And my job is to make sure that find it and try to improve their, their ability. A lot of American sports, it is about winning. And it sounds like that's not what you were trying to get the team to focus on. The Americans, they have something. I can really feel it now when I'm back in Sweden. The Americans, they have a ability to take two more steps. They could be exhausted. They could be one down, well, one zero down. But still, they believe to the very last second. And that is contagious. And it's something, I don't know where it comes from, but I would call that you know, some sort of American attitude. Now, I will bring back that to Sweden because I think it's contagious. So if you just find one player or two players or a coach that shows that, but you need your passion in order to do that. You believe in something and you take two more steps, but it comes from inside. It doesn't come from, from the coach. It comes from inside. It comes from the team. And that's something I experienced five years in the States. And if you have a player like Abby Wombach, she's competitive. If you have a player like Hope Solo, she's always competitive. It is phenomenal feeling to be around this team. And they have made me look good. How would you describe the arc of women's soccer in Sweden over the years? I mean, has it, has it built up steam in the same way women's soccer in the U.S. has? When I was little, uh, I was six years old at the time, and I wanted to play, you know, a real game. But I couldn't because I wasn't allowed to play soccer because I was a girl. Now, they called me, you know, I had a coach, and he called me Pelle. That's a Swedish boy's name. Mm. So I, my name was Pelle for two years in order to play soccer. 
So it started back then. So you said you're, you're saying you kind of you had to pass as a boy to play soccer. Exactly, I had to pass as a boy. I had no problem with that. And, and I think about my mom and dad, and they said, "Well, as long as you have fun, it's okay." So I was a little bit weird, unique, and, and you know, not like everybody else. But that was okay. And, and that's the passion for soccer. I played and I played, and um, it started with. Uh, Love for soccer, and it ended with World Cup, Olympics, European Championship. But there's so many people, so many women behind that development. It was a movement in Sweden, and you've seen this in, in the States as well. So, and you see that in Japan, there, there are in the beginning, they didn't have many spectators, and they played uh, lately, they played two finals. Mm. So, in the women's game, you know. Soccer is developing fairly fast, men and women. But in the women's game, it's so much faster because you have people that cares about the game and they want to improve the game. You know, I think of my daughter and her friends who got so motivated by the current U.S. women's team. How do you think women's soccer in the U.S. has changed during your tenure here? Well, I would hope that it's not only about going forward and try to get as close as possible to the, to the goal. It's uh, rhythm, you know. You know, I bring the music and mm. to some extent I want to bring the music into the game as well. Sometimes you are predictable, sometimes you're unpredictable. It's a very complex game. Instead of only talk about winning and going forward, you know, go for it, beat her, try to be smarter than that. And I think that mix is what makes uh, the Americans the best team in the world. When will you play the U.S. women's team, the team you used to coach? And what is that going to be like for you? Oh, I mean, probably Algarve Cup. That is in a couple of months. Oh, really? So, yes. I think we're in the same group. So um, I will coach against Abby Warmback and those guys. And that will be very – that will be – how is that? I don't know. But <laughs> there will be a, a lot of questions from journalists, of course. How does it feel and so on? And um, hmm. it, it, and sometimes you get carried away about uh, different cultures. But when i a little bit stressed, I go back to the game again and I talk about tactics and talk about wall passes and I'm all set. Pia Sundhaga, former coach of the U.S. national women's team, now coaching the national women's team in her native Sweden. Thank you for joining us and uh, thank you for all you've done for soccer in the U.S. Thank you so much. By the way, we've posted some video of Pia Sundhaga's legendary singing at our website. See Pia with her sixth string belting out Johnny Be Good at theworld.org. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. That nod to the popular board game Monopoly is your first clue for today's GeoQuiz. There are, as you may know, many global versions of Monopoly. But now, for the first time ever, there's an approved version of Monopoly featuring an African city. And that's the place we want you to name. It's the most populous city in Africa's most populous nation. Close to 8 million people call this port city home. It's renowned for its traffic jams and crazy drivers. Crossing the road, in fact, can be hazardous to your health. And maybe that's why in the Monopoly version, one of the chance cards reads... For crossing the road using a pedestrian bridge, move three places ahead. There is also a fair bit of corruption in this city, and that's why another chance card says this. For attempting to bribe a law enforcement agent, pay a fine. There you go. So where in the Monopoly universe has Boardwalk been replaced by Banana Island? The answer is coming up later in the program.
This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Coming up on The World, we remember Ravi Shankar, his music, and his trademark sitar. It's an instrument just in itself that can be so huge and sound, you know, so encompassing and, uh, and invite you into it. It's like a whole swirling world of resonance. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, demonstrating commitment to global economic, social, and environmental stewardship. Learn more in the 2012 Medtronic Corporate Citizenship Report, online at Medtronic.com. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. The voting on Egypt's controversial draft constitution has started, at least at Egyptian embassies abroad. The vote in Egypt itself will be held over two days, a week apart, starting this Saturday. The opposition wanted to call off the referendum, then planned to boycott it. Now it's urging Egyptians to vote no, rejecting the document. Meanwhile, details have emerged about last week's violence during demonstrations at the presidential palace. Opponents of President Mohamed Morsi say the Muslim Brotherhood carried out illegal detentions and beatings of anti-government protesters. From Cairo, the world's Matthew Bell has more. It was the worst episode of violence in this latest round of political crisis in Egypt. And by all accounts, it was vicious and bloody. Several people were killed in the street fight that took place outside the presidential palace last Wednesday night. Hundreds were injured. In this online video said to be shot at the scene, a young man with a bandage on his forehead says protesters were attacked by Muslim Brotherhood supporters with rocks, sticks, and guns. They called us infidels, he says, enemies of God, and they detained us. Other accounts are similar, including from Walid al-Ganzouri. He's a 35-year-old Egyptian engineer and businessman educated in Britain. Ganzouri told me he went to the palace to take part in anti-Morsi demonstrations and that things got violent when Brotherhood members and their supporters attacked. It was peaceful until they came and they started throwing stones and... uh... Looks like your hand might be broken. I I have five cuts here and uh, I I had some bruises, but it went fine now. I would say I'm lucky. You have to see the other guys' faces. Gonzuri says he was one of dozens of men rounded up by Brotherhood men that night and beaten repeatedly. He says the men kept asking three questions. Who brought you here? How much were you paid? And what drugs are you on? After they caught me, they started beating me up and they told me that we're going to kill you because two of our brothers were killed. I thought they're going to kill me. I knew they're going to kill me, so I, it's not about scared or not. I know it's, it's over. It's game over. I didn't believe it when, I, when, the, when, I, when I, it dropped me to the police station. Once in police custody, Ganzuri says the mistreatment stopped. He was questioned, held for 48 hours, and then released. The night after the violence occurred, President Morsi gave a speech and said that detainees were caught with weapons. He said they had confessed during interrogations to being paid and that they were tied to unnamed political forces inside Egypt or abroad. Soon after the speech ended, prosecutors released nearly all of those in custody. Human Rights Watch issued a statement criticizing Morsi for failing to condemn illegal detentions and abuse that occurred just outside the presidential palace. Gihad el-Haddad is a spokesman with the Muslim Brotherhood. He refutes the allegations that the organization, 
known by the shorthand MB, behaved like an extrajudicial vigilante group during last week's violence. In layman political terms, the MB went and stepped in as a human shield between an attempted coup um, by a group of hired thugs mixed with um, revolutionary supporters um, against a democratically elected president. As for the contention that there is a foreign-funded conspiracy to bring down the Egyptian government, Haddad says he gets why people are suspicious, and he wants President Morsi to show the evidence that will prove what he says. I think that the president should really come out and disclose what he has. It's been quite um, frustrating for many of us to have to defend what we know is a fact and what we know that the presidency has enough information on. Haddad says the Muslim Brotherhood will do whatever it takes to defend Egypt's democracy and the will of its people, but there's a backlash against the Brotherhood going on. The group says 10 of its members have been killed, more than 1,400 injured, and more than two dozen of its offices have been attacked in recent weeks. Mustafa Kamal al-Sayed is a professor of political science at Cairo University. He says the reports about the detentions and abuse might not be the tipping point. But he says many Egyptians are becoming disillusioned with the Muslim Brotherhood. You know, people had very good ideas um, about um, how efficient, how honest, um, uh, how uh, clever Muslim Brothers uh, would be in uh, running the country. And uh, we saw uh, a level of incompetence that far exceeds anything that was experienced uh, at the time of Hosni Mubarak. When Morsi was first elected, the public was focused on the new president's ambitious pledge to improve the everyday lives of Egyptians. These days, people wonder how the country will get through the current crisis. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell in Cairo. Members of the opposition in Egypt aren't the only ones concerned about radical Islamists. Russia is starting a new effort to tamp down radical Muslim sentiment within its borders. Russia is launching its first national Islamic TV channel. Producers hope the state-run channel will unite Russia's diverse Muslim ethnic groups and discuss the place of Muslims in modern Russia. The government also hopes the channel will help spread the values of moderate Islam. Matthew Brunwasser reports from Moscow. It's showtime in the studio of the new All-RTV channel. This talk show is hosted by Rustem Arifjanov, a seasoned Azeri journalist who also heads the channel. He says the mission is to reconnect Russian Muslims with their faith after 70 years of enforced atheism during the Soviet era. It was a big break. So many Muslims here don't know what Islam is. We would like this channel to tell the real story of Russian Islam, not Arabic Islam or Turkish or Iranian Islam. But the goal isn't just to reacquaint some Russians with their heritage. Armed Islamic militants are fighting several violent insurgencies across Russia's northern Caucasus. So Arif Janov says another important mission for all RTV is to encourage moderate Islam by filling the information vacuum for Russian Muslims. What is Islam like in reality? What is the history of our ancestors? Is it true that Muslims have peacefully coexisted with Christians in Russia for centuries? We will give answers to these pointed questions, and we will have more influence than those preachers who want to persuade people to pick up arms to fight for mythical Wahhabi or Salafi Islam. 
The problem is partially a result of the failure by the state to offer serious resources for Islamic education in Russia, says religion analyst Geraldine Fagan from the Forum 18 News Service. So starting 20 years ago, many Muslims went abroad to study. In some cases, people came back with pretty radical ideas. She says the conclusion of security officials was that Russia's indigenous Muslims were being infected by foreign ideas. The government decided that they should try and counter this influence by encouraging a moderate, homegrown version of Islamic education. Experts see the new state-supported channel as part of this new approach by the Russian state. This is our studio. Timur Bulgakov is a producer at All RTV. He says the tone of the channel will be secular, informative, and fun. It will be celebratory during holidays and appeal to several generations of Russian Muslim families. Content-wise, he says the enormous cultural diversity of Muslims in Russia provides plentiful material. And although the channel is in Russian, we will leave in the original languages to show the rich variety of Russia's many Muslim regions. The audience will be able to enjoy the sound of languages like Avar, Chechen, English, Tatar, Bashkir, and Udmurt. In an editing booth, editors are adding Russian subtitles to a show about cooking in a Dagestani language. Islam experts say the channel will be a success if it can foster dialogue between Russia's disparate Muslim communities. Alexander Sotnichenko at the St. Petersburg State University says the Russian state is good at dealing with insurgents in only two ways, using money and force. But the state is horrible at dialogue with religious communities about what it means to be a citizen of the Russian Federation. It is weak in identity. We have to present a new project of post-Soviet, a new Russian identity. Uh, 20 years now after the fall of Soviet Union, but we don't have this project. Is Russia a national state or it is an empire? What is it? We don't know. The questions are so difficult, Sotnichenko says, because even Russia's governing party doesn't know the answer. And that's why they are afraid of discussion. But we need this discussion, and maybe in this discussion we will find a new Russian identity. All RTV could be a hopeful sign, he says. But with political violence by Islamic groups spreading to other Russian regions beyond the Caucasus, pressure is growing for some kind of a more aggressive, non-military approach. For The World, I'm Matthew Brunwasser, Moscow. Get a tour of Russia's first Islamic TV channel. Matthew went behind the scenes at Al RTV. We have the slideshow at theworld.org. For our geo-quiz, we were looking for an African city that's just gotten the monopoly treatment. The city of 8 million is a setting for the first officially sanctioned city version of the popular board game on the continent. The answer is Lagos, Nigeria. And earlier I spoke with the BBC's Tome Oladipo in Lagos. First thing I asked him... What replaces Boardwalk as the priciest property on the board? Well, the most expensive here is a place called Banana Island. It's a neighborhood where some of Nigeria's wealthiest people live. Lots of billionaires live there. And um, if you want to get a nice apartment there, you probably pay about $150,000 a year, which is quite a lot, at least here in Nigeria. And to buy a house there, uh, you'll part with a cool maybe 6 to $8 million dollars. Wow. And it, it, obviously all the, the, the currency on the, the Lagos game, it's in Naira, the local currency? 
Um, it's actually not Naira. It's an M. I guess they weren't able to to get some kind of rights to put Naira <laughs> on it, but it's it's M. Um, I guess for Monopoly, really. So the the government of Nigeria, you think, actually said we've got copyright protection on our currency? Well, I don't know about that, but um, it seems as if there was um, a bit of some. Uh, some disagreements as to what could be on the board because there's some uh, key landmarks in in Lagos which actually did not make it onto the board. Nigeria runs a federal system uh, and Lagos is a state on its own and this project was run together with Lagos state government. So the Lagos state government was able to put in some of its own landmarks or some things that it's trying to promote. For example, the Lagos state government has a new set of traffic laws um, and a lot of those have been put in the game. For example, people who drive against traffic. There's a lot of lawless driving here in Lagos. So if you're caught driving against traffic, in the real sense, you will be sent for psychiatric evaluation. And that actually is here among the chance cards. So, so those are the chance cards. I mean, if, does, has anybody in Lagos ever been uh, kind of recommended for psychiatric evaluation because of, you know, infractions like that? Yes, they have been. I mean, um, you probably wouldn't be, uh, I mean, I don't know what the outcomes have been, but yes, that was brought into law a few months ago. And, um, you know, it's it's probably one of the extremes, I would say, but uh, it's just one of the new sort of ways of making people behave because there are a lot of uh, people here, a lot of drivers who would leave you quite confused by the way they <laughs> swerve across the road or drive on the on the opposite side of the road. There, there is a bit of that lawless, lawlessness you find here in Lagos. So the game makers are going to make money on this. It costs more than $40. I mean, that seems like a, a lot of money for most residents of Lagos. Is that right? Yes. And it appears as if um, they probably will only be able to target the middle class because, um, you know, Monopoly needs a bit of, um, I mean, it's not just something you can just uh, put together. Checkers, for example, is a very popular uh, board game you have here. And checkers, once you just have the, the checkered board, uh, people use bottle tops or whatever they can use to play the game. And you find that in all parts of the country uh, with people of all um, social classes. But Monopoly, for example, uh, you, I mean, you have to be educated or you have to understand what you're doing. So it's not just anybody who can play the game. And that probably is the limitation of the game here in Nigeria. Um, Lagos has some pretty notorious slums. Are they represented on the board? Uh, yes, they are. There is one called Makoko, which is a floating slum. It's sort of like Venice. It's um, just people who've built their houses on stilts um, on the water. And so that's there. But this board, I think because Lagos has had such a chaotic um, image associated with it, uh, and now a lot of people people from Lagos are trying to change the image of the city. So there isn't too much uh, focus on these rundown parts of the city. There's a lot of focus on the more on the more affluent areas. So like Banana Island and other beaches and nice uh, shopping malls and very affluent neighborhoods. So you'll see a lot more of that than you will see of the slums or, or, or the poorer areas. The BBC's Tommy Oladipo in Lagos, Nigeria, the answer to today's GeoQuiz. By the way, South Africa and Morocco have their own country versions of Monopoly. Nairobi, Kenya has a version of the game, but Oladipo told me it's not officially sanctioned. A few thousand miles southeast of Lagos, journalist Paul Salopek is getting ready to start quite the ambitious project. Salopek is a writer and war correspondent for the Chicago Tribune and National Geographic, and next month he plans to embark on a 21,000-mile journey through human history on foot, starting from the Great Rift Valley in Ethiopia. So I'll be retracing the pathways of the first human diaspora out of Africa that occurred about 50 to 70,000 years ago. 
uh, as authentically as possible on foot uh, to try to move through the great stories of our day and absorb them a little more meaningfully and share them more meaningfully. Salopek estimates he'll end up walking about 30 million steps, give or take, to follow the path of human migration across three continents. He expects it to take seven years in total. The plan for year one alone sounds exhausting, from the Rift Valley up to North Africa, across the Red Sea, and into the Middle East. And then from there, I will continue the trek eastward across uh, Eurasia into uh, East Asia through China, north through Siberia. I'll hop a boat across the Bering Strait and then ramble down um, the New World to Tierra del Fuego, uh, the place where our ancestors arrived about 12,000 years ago. Salopec expects a good bit of downtime along the way. He'll hang out, look for Wi-Fi probably. Even though he's retracing a journey made tens of thousands of years ago, he won't eschew the conveniences of modern man. He'll blog some, maintain a website, and write longer stories about his travels for National Geographic and others. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. The sitar, there are many players, but there's only one name that's ever really been associated with the instrument, and that is Ravi Shankar, who died yesterday at the age of 92. In a moment, some reflections on Ravi Shankar and his life in music from the world's Arun Roth. But right now, let me introduce you to the music of Anthony Safari, a disciple of Shankar's, you could say, who played sitar in the band Corner Shop. Clearly, there's a long stylistic line between Ravi Shankar and Corner Shop, and yet, Anthony Safari, there is a line. You played the sitar on that track. Did you learn the instrument because of Ravi Shankar? Yes. Um, I've then, through uh, George Harrison, who is the uh, the carrier to my ears, right? and, uh, I mean, obviously, it's kind of well-documented how George Harrison was, you know, highly impressed and, you know, learned a lot from Ravi Shankar and the sitar. And listening to George and then to Ravi, um, yes, it, it inspired me to play, essentially. And what was it about Ravi Shankar embodying this instrument and, and his performances that drew you to it? He was obviously, uh, you know, an ab- beyond master and had an enigmatic and uh, sort of smiling, warm presence that I could see via videos. It looked like something I would want to play. What is it about the sitar that, that you like so much? Um, it's an instrument just in itself that can be so huge and sound, you know, so encompassing and uh, and invite you into it. It's like a whole swirling world of resonance and you can have all these emotions, but in this big swirl, it's just very, uh, very full for just one instrument. I think so many people still view the sitar as an exotic instrument. And, you know, for the most part, the sitar can't really become part of Western music without imbuing it with the sound of India, in a way. Yeah. Make the case for us, though, why playing the sitar has made you a better Western musician. Um, It's understanding how things can work with each other and how having something that's really you don't think would work just somehow lifts everything else up. You get something for a lot of different people, a lot of different cultures, can suddenly hear something in it. And I think uh, should anyone be a you know a listener of Indian classical music, they probably can listen to Corner Shop and think, oh, that's, I would never have heard that there. Or hip-hop, that's another great thing sitar works into. And I've worked with a couple of hip-hop bands and the sitar's in there. <laughs> um, it's somehow just, you know, it teaches people to look at a bigger, wider and more worldly picture. 
Anthony Safari, a member of the band Corner Shop and Sitaras. Thank you so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. George Harrison famously called Ravi Shankar the godfather of world music. But Ravi Shankar was also something of a father figure for children of the multicultural age. The world's Arun Roth has this appreciation. You've been hearing universal praise today for Ravi Shankar, and it is deeply deserved. His music was so good, he managed to open a door and raise the bar at the same time. But not many people know that when Ravi Shankar began to cross musical boundaries, there was not universal praise, particularly in India. Purists in the classical music establishment there were deeply disturbed when Shankar began to work with Western musicians. And the purists were downright horrified when he began to associate with George Harrison and the Beatles. The Fab Four famously visited India in 1968. While the Beatles themselves may have been serious about Indian music and spirituality, the followers in their large entourage were not so culturally sensitive. A lot of Indians were put off. But here's something the purists failed to appreciate, or maybe they didn't care. As Ravi Shankar traveled the world, crossing musical boundaries, lots of other people were crossing boundaries, mixing cultures, producing a generation of children like myself, an Anglo-Indian-American, and lots of other permutations. For people like me, multicultural, multiracial, this was our music. And for those of us who grew up away from our ancestral home of India, living with imaginary homelands, to use Salman Rushdie's phrase, Shankar provided an easy bridge back. His explanations of Indian music helped us learn about ourselves. And our generation... Ravi Shankar's Godchildren, has produced some remarkable music that speaks our new musical language. Percussionist Trilo Gurtu switches back and forth from tablas to a drum kit effortlessly, making traditional Indian melodies swing. And of course, there's the amazing music produced by Ravi's own very different children, singer Nora Jones and sitarist Anushka Shankar. Anushka's last album was a marvelous fusion of Indian classical music and Spanish flamenco. It can be awkward to be of two cultures and neither at the same time. Ian e. Forster described an Anglo-Indian character in A Passage to India. In a room full of Indians or a room full of Englishmen, he was okay. But in a mixed environment, he was bewildered. He didn't know whether to act Indian or English. For those of us facing a similar confusion, this kind of music can be empowering. Your ears and your heart tell you there's nothing awkward or impure about this combination. It's beautiful. For the world, I'm Arun Roth.
today with Ravi Shankar and Philip Glass playing the track Prashanti, which means peacefulness. We also have video of Ravi at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. And by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI, Public Radio International.